1: Hello everyone and welcome to our show. Today we discuss about brand loyalty, how you can create brand awareness uh, and grow online. Today I need to have this conversation with Aaron. Hello Aaron, how are you? Hi, I'm glad I... Before we start, tell more about your experience, background and why you decided
0: to share with us about brand loyalty today. All right, so my experience... Do you want to hear sort of the history? I so I I I have a lot of research on brand mm-hmm. love. Brand love nice. is basically it's just love, <laughs> except uh, when you know people love all kinds of things. We love other people, we love friends, but then people also love objects or activities or hobbies, um, and in particular, if the thing someone happens to love is something a marketer cares about, so it would be a product or a brand or a service, then marketers call it brand love to Mm -hmm. uh, help them focus on it and see its relevance to marketing. So Mm
1: -hmm.
0: that's uh, the basic idea. Then there's a lot to the psychology of that. And as far as it relates to uh, brand loyalty, it is the best predictor known For brand loyalty. So if you're interested in brand loyalty, you you definitely want to be interested in brand love. Uh, I can tell you for a moment how I got started doing this work, if that's uh, something you're interested in. So I started many years ago, I was a PhD student in marketing. I was working Mm with uh, I was at Northwestern and working with Professor Kotler, who wrote some famous textbooks. Some people might be familiar with him. Uh, Of course, yeah. And he was very big on, you know, marketing is everything. (laughs) So Mm -hmm. religions are marketing themselves, and politicians are marketing themselves, and artists are marketing themselves. Everybody's marketing. And he said, even dating, even when you're dating, you're marketing yourself. And Mm -hmm. I thought that was super interesting because I was single, a lot more interesting than regular old marketing. So I asked him if I could do a paper on that and he actually connected me to a professor, Mara Edelman, who had a bunch of research on dating services. And we ended up looking at how the marketplace was responding to the needs of singles to find other people to connect. Uh, And in some cultures, they had matchmakers for a long time, but in America, that wasn't a common thing to have a matchmaker. So we did this research just as the Internet was getting going and as the whole Internet dating and other kinds of matchmaking uh, services and uh, singles ads were all getting going. Uh, And it was fascinating to watch because today Internet dating is the most common way that people meet each other. Mm -hmm. and at that time one of the things we were writing about was the stigma that this had that if you were if you used at the beginning if you were one of the first people to use this uh people thought oh they must be a loser they must be socially unpopular they can't get someone the normal Mm -hmm. way they have to resort to this other approach Mm -hmm. Um, and one of the things we wrote about was how uh by according to the data that mara edelman had collected people who are using these services weren't actually losers. They're actually people who had a lot of opportunities, but were very picky. Mm-hmm. <laughs> so they, it's not they couldn't find anyone who wanted them. They couldn't find anybody they wanted. They were just like, maybe, maybe that's just as bad. I don't know. But they were very picky people <laughs> and they were the first people. So we wrote about that. We called it the choosers, not losers phenomenon.
1: Mm-hmm. Uh,
0: and I actually ended up going on the Oprah Winfrey show to talk about this. It was a lot of fun. Nice. But eventually I needed to pick a dissertation topic, and I knew that if I was the dating services professor, um, I wouldn't get hired at a really good school. They'd see that as trivial. Uh, mm. Which is a little funny because actually the most important thing in anybody's life are their social relationships and, and, and the romantic relationships. There's nothing in the world less trivial. Than finding mm-hmm. a good life partner.
1: Mm-hmm. Yet,
0: ironically, as I think about it now, like if I if I had studied why people buy tuna fish, nobody would have thought that was trivial. That's the most trivial thing. Why people? How people connect? That's the least trivial thing. Oh, whatever. whatever. Mm-hmm. <laughs> um, no one would have hired me. So I had this deep background, though, because I had working at this point I'd been working on on this for a couple of years, and I'd been very much reading the psychology of love to understand how people fall in love and how that would work with these dating services. And I needed a new topic. So I said, well, since I've got all this knowledge about the psychology of love, what if I look at what happens if people love products or brands? And it turned out I was very fortunate in that, um, people had noticed that people love products and brands before and had talked about it sort of tangentially, made a remark about it here and there, but nobody really studied it in depth before. Mm -hmm. So I ended up publishing the first paper uh, on brand love. And then a little Mm -hmm. bit later, uh, I wasn't in the beginning, I wasn't even calling it brand love. Then I published a paper with Barbara Carroll that used the term brand love and kind of popularized that and included a scale. And then I've gone on to publish Fourteen other, well, total of fourteen papers on the topic and a book that recently came out mm-hmm. uh, on the topic. So uh, I'm sort of the brand love guy uh, <laughs> in, that, <laughs> in that respect. Um, so mm-hmm. not all that different from the dating services guy. But this one, uh, a lot of companies I've I've done work with Google and Ford and Chrysler and Microsoft. And Samsung and a lot of major companies are are very interested in in this topic of brand love. And I can, with that background, uh, happy to talk in more detail about how it's really relevant in everyday life and and what people can do with it.
1: Nice. Nice. Awesome. Okay. Let's talk about uh, compare uh, brand loyalty and brand love. Can you tell Mm -hmm. the difference? Because, you know, in most cases, we use brand loyalty. When customers uh, buy some specific brands, Mm -hmm. they're loyal to them. What about love? It's more, uh, I don't know, like, how to explain that. Uh, Love is more uh, emotion or uh, Mm -hmm. compared to loyalty. What do you think?
0: Yeah, so usually the way we distinguish is most of the time brand loyalty is simply described behaviorally. Um, If Mm -hmm. you buy the same product over and over again, you are loyal to it. It doesn't really matter why some researchers make a distinction and they'll talk about behavioral loyalty, which is just buying the same thing a bunch of times versus uh, what they'll call affective loyalty or psychological loyalty, just feeling loyal, feeling dedicated to this brand in some Mm -hmm. way. Uh, Brand love is, More similar to that affective loyalty, that sort of feeling. In theory, I mean, it it is true that when people love a brand or the degree to which they love a brand is the best predictor of whether they'll actually repeatedly buy that brand. But it does happen that people may love something and not buy it. Maybe they stop being able to afford it. Maybe something new comes along. There's all kinds of reasons, right? Maybe it's not convenient for them. Mm and, and vice versa, there's lots of reasons why people will buy something repeatedly without really giving a damn about it at all. It's just a habit. It's just, I've always bought it. I don't really care. It's convenient. I, you know, it's on, it, whatever. So mm-hmm. uh, that, that's kind of the distinction. Um, that's kind of the distinction there. Brand love also does other things that go beyond brand loyalty. So one of the things that marketers care tremendously about We've always cared as marketers. We've always cared about word of mouth. But, and that was even before the internet came along. But now, (laughs) I mean, it's so much more of a big deal than it used to be because uh, consumers, if they are happy with your product, they'll tell a lot of people. If they're unhappy, they'll tell a lot of people. There are these formal review star rating ranking systems that influence purchase a great deal. Um, So marketers have become even more concerned with uh, that kind of willingness to share information. And Mm -hmm. of course, many of your listeners will be familiar with the net promoter score, which is all based Mm -hmm. around that. Um, I haven't seen any formal comparisons of brand love versus net promoter in their ability to predict how likely someone is to go out and say good things about your brand. Mm-hmm. however i do know that brand love is tremendously predictive of that and if you just think about it if you go to someone you know a parent or a grandparent and say go to grand grandmother say tell me about your grandchildren she's happy to talk about that <laughs> she'll talk mm-hmm. about them until you are old enough to, to have grandchildren mm-hmm. yourself uh yeah. <laughs> so uh, people love to talk if you're if people are love to talk about things that they love. They say very positive things. They brag about them. And they're very quick to defend them. And I I can get a little bit into the psychology of why that is. But if someone, you know, it's always the case online that there's someone saying something bad about your brand someplace. And you as a company can respond to that. But it's 100 times more effective if a consumer, a group of consumers comes and defends the brand. So mm-hmm. when people love the brand, they're, they're really interested in defending it. And, and, and that's kind of what love is, right? You know, you, in terms of human evolution or animal evolution, animals evolved to love their offspring. It's a mechanism that gets the animal to defend its offspring. So yeah. that, that sort of defensive uh, activity is, is a big part of love.
1: Mm -hmm. Yeah. Nice. Nice. Okay. uh, Let's talk about measurement. How to uh, estimate this uh, level of love? Because, you know, uh, I can uh, assume that my customers love my brand, uh, Mm -hmm. but uh, how to measure (laughs) this uh, and compare to competitors that I have, for
0: example. Yeah. So there's a number of good measures. Um, The best one is Uh, a more recent measure that I developed with Rick Bogosi and Rajiv Batra, both at University of Michigan Ross School of Business and Marketing. And that measure has a number of different lengths. Uh, When academics do research, we like to use long scales uh, because they're more reliable and more accurate. In market research, people love to use short very, very short scales or even just single items uh, because they're cheaper to get the data, cheaper to administer and faster. So you could ask people, and it's not a terrible approach. You can just ask people on a scale of 1 to 10, how much do you love such and such? And that is reasonably accurate. If you want to make cross-cultural comparisons, you're going to have a problem in some situations because there's some languages where they use the word love to refer to objects and other languages where they don't. So if you're using the word love and you want to compare across cultures, you may get differences based on just, are people used to using the word that way? That's one of the reasons when I developed the measure with uh, Rick Boghossian and Rajiv Batra, what we do is we figured out what love consists of And then we ask about each part. And so if you're strong on each part, then you love something overall, because we've got, you know, all the parts that make it up. But we don't um, actually use the word love, so that you can use this, the measure in different cultures or with different groups of people. And you'll, you'll be more likely just to detect Differences in how much they love something rather than differences in the language mm-hmm. uh, that they use doing that. Mm-hmm.
1: Yeah, you know, uh, I can tell what I love in your book because when I've seen your book, um, you know, I think you you had the best designer who can draw this picture. Uh, uh, cover of your book because you know these sunglasses with hearts you know guys you need to check out this cover because it's very creative i think the best cover that i've seen you know oh but, thank you
0: i'm so yeah, glad you, yeah
1: yeah. <laughs> yeah because i know that today it's important you know to catch attention and i remember uh one study about the book um, when the author changed uh the title of the book and uh, cool sell. uh many times more books yeah he didn't change any text he just changed the title but you have awesome cover guys you can find the the link to this book you need to read it you know uh check out the cover you know yeah it's very creative okay uh let's talk about uh, new products for example if uh someone wanna uh create new product Mm -hmm. uh how to create this uh uh love of this product you know how to create this feeling you know uh uh, for customers uh, if they don't know anything about your product, but uh, you know it's high quality and uh, you want to provide this uh, love feeling
0: right. So the very first thing you need to do is as you've said, make sure it's very high quality. Mm-hmm. Uh, yeah the having an exceptionally good product does not guarantee that people will love it, but it's kind of a, a minimum entry requirement. Because people are very judgmental, and if they feel a product is mediocre, yeah. when you say you love something, you are sort of publicly making it a part of your own identity, and people do not want to have their identity attached to things that they don't feel good about and don't feel are excellent, because they want themselves to be excellent. Why would you take some? Why would you make something part of yourself if you think it's mediocre? So quality and. Uh, innovativeness of, of the product are, are very important to begin with. However, it goes a lot beyond that. So the next thing to think about is user experience. Yeah. Uh, if you have a product that creates some sort of a benefit in the future, you know, uh, but it isn't the experience of using the product or service itself isn't that enjoyable, people are not going to love that. Yeah. And you could think about this with the phrase, does he love her or does she love him? Or is, you know, are they just using the other person? Does they love, do, does, do they love the other person or are they just using the other person?
1: Mm-hmm.
0: Uh, if just using them means that there's some other goal, they don't really enjoy the time you spend with that person you just are spending time with them because you've got some other goal, something else you want out of it, a promotion or whatever it might be. Uh, It's the same with products. If you are just, quote, just using them, now there's nothing morally wrong with that. I do think, I think there is a problem morally if you are, using other people. There's nothing morally wrong with using objects as tools. You know, that's, that's fine. Got a hammer, you can use it as a tool all you want. There's nothing wrong with Uh that. But um, if that's all that's going on, even if you think the outcome is really useful and beneficial to you, if there's another product that comes along, that'll provide that outcome, or maybe a little bit more, or maybe the same outcome a little bit cheaper, you'll switch. Because you don't actually care about the tool. You just care about the outcome. Yeah. But if you uh, enjoy using it, then it's possible for the, you start building a relationship with it. And when you start building a relationship with it, then you don't want to switch, even if another product comes along. So the, the user experience has to be, you know, positive and enjoyable in some way. Past that, there's three other kinds of approaches that you need to use at least one of because the human brain is hardwired not to love brands or products or activities. The human brain is fundamentally set up to distinguish between people and everything else. And your brain does this at a neurological level. If you uh, look at an object performing some task your brain will process that information in one part of the brain. If you look at a person performing the same task, your brain will process that information in actually a physically different part of the brain. So your brain really makes a big distinction between people and what they do and objects and other things out there in the world. And love is reserved for people. Yet we do love all sorts of things and we love all sorts of things because there are some ways that your brain ends up thinking about things using the same thought processes it normally reserves for people. So got three of these approaches. One, the first one, the most straightforward is anthropomorphism, which means that you make the object look like or sound like, or behave like a person in some way. Cars do this, like the front of a car auto designers call that, the face of the car because the headlights look like an eye, the eyes and the grill sort of like a mouth. And so if you have a product that resembles a person in some way, uh, that's a, an anthropomorphic approach and human brains will get fooled by that and start thinking of the product somewhat as human. There's a, a cleaning sponge that came out a couple of years ago a scrubby sponge for the kitchen, you know, for doing the dishes and things. And it's very interesting. It's a a new sort of high-tech material that works very well for cleaning. But they made it, they cut it into pieces so it looks like a face. They intentionally designed it so it's a smiling face. And the person who invented that, I believe now, is a billionaire. It's been incredibly successful. and I, I kind of wonder, like, how much is just like the, the crazy idea of making the things look like a human face? You know, to what extent does that contribute to the success? Mm-hmm. So that's anthropomorphism. The second approach is that you connect it with a person. So maybe the brand has a spokesperson. Maybe it's a celebrity. If, it's, if you're an entrepreneur, it's probably you, the owner of the, the entrepreneur who becomes the human face for the brand. And then people's feelings about the brand very much become based on their feelings about you. Um, And so this is another way to do, to to, to create sort of humanize the brand so that people might love it and form a relationship with it. And the the third way is to get people to see the brand as part of their own sense of identity. And this is the most fundamental in love. And I think, It actually, this third one, you may do this and anthropomorphism or this and as, you know, having a human spokesperson for the brand, but you're always doing this because whenever people love another person or anything else, they are opening up the psychological boundary that their brain puts around themselves. The brain opens up that boundary, brings the other thing in, and closes the boundary up again Um, Mm -hmm. so that the brain comes to think of whatever this thing is as if it was part of the person's own self and own identity. And that is the core of love. I would argue at a psychological level for everything, including people that we love. And I have a suspicion that it's actually even true for animals. When they don't, some animals love the way people do. A lot of animals have something that's similar, but not quite the same. But I I have a hunch that even in animals that aren't sort of the same brain structure that humans do, they're not mammals. I have a hunch that that's still how they process uh, bonding, it's called in, in animals.
1: Mm-hmm. yeah interesting yeah i agree with that i think you know uh marketing can't save bad products you know and uh, if you have bad products <laughs> it's better not to market just develop in and go ahead with that so yeah completely and about uh brand loyalty uh i think um, i know that many companies think they have a loyal audience but it's not true because you know if you want loyalty buy a dog. Because customers uh, can choose other products. Sometimes they uh, they like your product. They don't need to choose another. But if uh, they feel that uh, other products are better, uh, so they will switch without any hesitation. So, yeah, I agree with that. Okay, let's talk about... Uh, creating strong brand recognition. Can you provide your tips uh, how to do it today? Because I see many companies, they oversell. They don't care about customers. Uh, They don't help support them. Just think how to sell and... uh, but, um, you know, many customers have this bad experience, uh, poor experience. Uh, so they can switch to, uh, to competitors who can provide this experience. Can you provide your tips how to create this brand love today? I mean, like uh, to improve uh, this feeling.
0: Yeah, to improve the feeling just in general. Yeah, in general. Um, so I, I touched on a number of approaches, but we can go back to some of those and look at, look at them in more depth. So one of the things we can look at is this idea that people want to make the product or you want to help people make the product uh, part of their identity. And to do that, people, often it helps if the product is seen by the consumers as related to deeply held values that they have. Mm -hmm. So there's been in the news over the past year, a lot of examples where companies, big consumer companies, Walt Disney, Nike, have taken political stands on certain issues. And from a marketing perspective, you might think, and you might actually be right, that that's a foolish thing to do because whatever stand they take, there's going to be a lot of people who are going to disagree with it and you know you, you risk losing those people, so just keep your nose out of it. That's been the traditional approach for most companies. You know, keep your nose out of that, and and don't say anything that's controversial. You don't want to annoy people, anybody, regardless of mm-hmm. their point of view. But the reason companies are doing that, well, it's partly because their employees are demanding it. The employees feel that they don't want to work for a company that is sort of doesn't take a stand on these issues. But it's also because they want to connect with consumers at a a deeper level and they feel that addressing controversial or moral or social issues makes their brand meaningful on this kind of deeper level, which then connects more deeply to consumers' sense of identity if the consumers agree with them. And these are issues that when they take a, a, a stand on these issues, There are issues where there's a a large age difference in opinions. So um, most of these have been social issues around gender and sexual identity or around uh, racial identity or racism. And younger consumers tend to have very politically progressive ideas about that. Companies want to... Gain the loyalty of consumers when they're young, in the hopes that they'll keep that loyalty as they get older. Mm-hmm. So younger consumers, both if you you know if you can gain the loyalty of a 20-year-old, you could have another 50 years or 60 years of, of, of buying loyalty out of that person. Plus, it's easier to gain the loyalty of younger people because they haven't made up their mind yet. If you go and you're trying to change, you know, someone's been buying a certain brand for 30 years and you want to change their mind, that's difficult. But when when people are younger, they're just finding out and making those decisions for the first time. There tends to be a lot of competition about how to gain the the loyalty of these younger consumers. And that's why these brands are making these sort of moral uh, connections to the brand, uh, taking on these controversial issues. So that's that's another approach. Um, I don't necessarily think I think for both Nike and Disney, like neither of those companies picked that topic themselves. Both of those companies had those controversial topics thrust upon them by events beyond their control and then had to decide what to do. If I was picking a topic, I wouldn't pick one, something that's going to be controversial like that. But you do want to pick something that people actually feel strongly about. And you want to pick something that, that makes sense for your brand. So I'll give you an example. Someone who did this well, or a company who did this well, is Avon. We immediately think, whenever we think of Avon, you think of women, because it's a woman, women are, make up most of the workforce. It, I believe it is a female-owned company. It sells products that are directed at women. So it's it got a very strong gendered identity. And for their cause, they chose breast cancer which is a great cause because it's also gendered, even though there are men who get breast cancer from time to time, for the most part it's women and it has that sort of also a symbolically sort of female identity that goes. So it makes sense for Avon. and something that people care about and Fortunately, since they got to choose the topic themselves, they chose something that nobody like. Nobody's gonna. Nobody's on the side of breast cancer. Nobody's like, I'm yeah. so. I love breast cancer. I'm so angry that you are <laughs> to stand against breast cancer. Nobody. Nobody's gonna say that. So. Yeah. <laughs> uh, so that was a good one. But a lot of other companies looked at Avon's success, and said oh, breast cancer really worked for Avon, let's do breast cancer too. And so you got all the other companies jumping in, doesn't work nearly as well for them because A, it's kind of already taken a little bit, but moreover, it doesn't make sense for them. It makes sense for Avon because Avon has such a strong female identity. And so breast cancer works with And What these other companies need to do is they need to find something that resonates with their identity and makes sense for them. Um, not just glom on something that somebody else, you know, made sense for a different brand.
1: Yeah. You, you remind me a story, One uh, one ex-manager, top manager of Apple, uh, became SEO of another company, not big one, but yeah, with a loyal audience as well. And what he did, he, uh, yeah, uh, He canceled all discounts uh, for customers and told, uh, told, we don't need them. And after that, uh, this company lost uh, 50% of their sales, a lot of them. Mm -hmm. Uh, And because he didn't loan customers, the the customers of this brand, uh, uh, you know, they love this brand because of these discounts. They chased these discounts. They uh, Mm -hmm. felt happy. To have to have them, and you remind me about the story uh, that you know it depends on the customers' audience. Uh, with this, um, your example, can you tell how to learn customers today? For example, if uh, I wanna, I have different customers from my competitors. I can't use the average study. I can't use uh, the average data online tools. But uh, how to consider my unique selling proposition and learn customers uh, to develop and innovate products?
0: So um, could you repeat the question again? I, I, I'm not exactly sure what the, what the question is.
1: I mean, like how to learn customers today, uh, their preferences, interests, right. habits. Yeah.
0: Yeah. How to, how to learn about that. Yeah. Um, so I am a big fan of combining both qualitative research, quantitative research and observational data. Um, The first thing I would do, though, is figure out who your target market is. Mm -hmm. One of the things that brands that inspire love do is that they pick a fairly small target market. um, Or it doesn't have to be small, but they have a very specific target market. And they are able to produce a product and advertise it in a way that really resonates with those people. What happens there is you get those people so excited about the product that they start to bring in other people. So many brands are wary of doing this because they think, well, I don't just wanna sell to this one group of people, I wanna sell to a bunch of different people. But if you can get one group to be excited Um, You will sell to other people. They'll be the people that this group tells about how great the product is, um, even if it isn't always perfect for them. So uh, an example of this, when SUVs were new, they had actually not exactly new. They'd been around for a while. The Jeep had been making them for a while. But they were very much focused on people who really went off-road driving with them. And that was a fairly small market. And that was a little too small. It, was, it wasn't really going to grow beyond that because it was it had this very narrow sort of functional purpose there. What they didn't realize though is that there was a larger market, which was mostly men, uh, mostly younger-ish, young through middle-aged rather than older than that, who wanted the functionality of a station wagon or a minivan but found the image too uh, off-putting so they saw them a uh, minivan as particularly feminine and they wanted something that seemed masculine to them uh and they saw other cars uh, as cars for like old people or you know people who are boring and they wanted something that was uh, not that has sort of a spirit of adventure. So mm-hmm. what the car companies realized they could do is they could take a, a car that's basically just a station wagon, put it on stilts, give it a higher driving presence, um, and and mark it up in, you know enormously in terms of the the the, the profit margin on the car, mm-hmm. and sell it to this group of men who had the wanted the functionality of the station wagon or a minivan, but with a rugged, outdoors, masculine, adventurous image attached to it. Um, and it was a huge hit. It really it met both the practical needs and the symbolic image needs that these men had. And they, really, they just loved this car. And so they started telling everyone about what a fabulous car it was. And so then it started to spread beyond that group of people to wider and wider group. I remember some years ago, my mother, this is when when SUVs were really just very fashionable and very much under discussion. She came to me, she was like probably 75 years old at that point. She said, I'm in this water exercise class. I don't know if you've seen these, but like old people get in the pool and then do exercises in the swimming pools because it helps with their old joints and whatnot. And she says, like, there's five women who are with me in this water exercise for old people class. And they're all telling me that my next car needs to be an SUV because SUVs are the best cars. And I just thought, wow, you know, there's there's just nobody who really needs an SUV less than my mom. Like, she, just has, <laughs> she has no need for that car whatsoever. Mm-hmm. But, you know the the other old ladies in her exercise class are telling her, "Oh, this is the car you have to get." None of them need an SUV, <laughs> um, but it's it's it reached out to this larger group of people. So the first step, you know, you asked about how do you get this data, how do you measure, or how do you learn about customers? The first step before you learn about customers is finding out, figuring out who you want your customers to be, um, and. Find a group of people that you believe you can be so good for that they are just going to get excited about it. And then when you gather data, you want to gather data from those people.
1: Yeah, yeah, love it, love it. Uh, I have the final question. Uh, let's imagine uh, you have no experience, knowledge, skills. You didn't uh, write this awesome book. What will you do to learn today about uh, brand
0: love? well um i think the best i mean is it, except for the obvious answers i would read this professor Huvia's book but <laughs> aside from aside from that aside from yeah. that um the best work on this really is the academic work and most of it's mm-hmm. pretty approachable um if people want uh there's a, there's a website that I have called Brand Love Central, and people can download papers there. Um, and that's not a bad place uh, to learn about this, is to look at that sort of academic work that's uh, on it. Mm-hmm. I would say that there's a, a literature that you could also look at on consumer brand relationships, um, brand love is sort of one part of that literature, but there's a lot of interesting stuff there on consumer brand relationships uh, that's worth looking at. Susan Fournier is a well-known author in that area. Uh, a lot of times, I mean, the consulting I get, I've never gone and looked for a consulting job and I've done a fair amount of it. And it's always the same stories. People just went on to Google Scholar which is where you can, it's like, the, it's like the Google search engine, but specifically for academic papers. It's going on mm-hmm. Google scholar, they put in brand love and they said, well, you seem to be the guy <laughs> that's all over <laughs> this. So they, they've come to me. Um, and I would recommend, you know, that just go to Google scholar for any topic that you're interested in. Um, mm-hmm. Instead of Googling it where you get a lot of consultants, if you go to the, the, the special search engine, Google scholar, put in the, the business topic and you'll you'll get more academic stuff it's, it's a little bit drier to read but it's usually a little bit more balanced as well uh, it's very dangerous there's a lot of stuff out there um, there was a big controversy some years ago with uh, net promoter which is a, a method of assessing people's happiness or satisfaction with, you know with a brand or a product and then uh, the what had been already established was just customer satisfaction measurement. And there was a, a big claim by the people who do not promote that if you ask people, will you recommend this, this product, but that's vastly better than asking them, are you satisfied with this product? Yeah, And the truth came out, that you know, no, it really isn't that different. Either one. I mean, there's, there's situations where one's a little better or the other's a little better, but they're, they're not that different as you kind of would expect. And so, a lot of the information you get from consultants is really a big sell job. And so I I do like recommending people go to the academic literature and get stuff that's a little more unbiased.
1: Nice, nice. Okay, guys. Uh, um, You can find all links to Aaron, uh, to his book, awesome book, social media accounts in the description below. By the way, tell our audience which way is better to reach out to you, to learn more about you, follow you?
0: Uh So... There's the best thing to do was just to, to get the book, the things we love, how our passions connect us and make us who we are. Um, it really explains the fundamental psychology behind brand love. It doesn't mm-hmm. only talk about brands. It talks about all kinds of things that people love, but the underlying psychology is the same for all of these things. And so it, it, it provides the, the best place to start with this work. Um, beyond that, follow me on LinkedIn, or I've got a mm-hmm. blog that's kind of fun. I think it's not just about business, but it, it's called Peace, Love and Happiness and Marketing. So mm-hmm. it, it deals with a, a number of my issues, sometimes straying pretty far from marketing. But if you're interested in the kind of work I do, uh, it's it's a fun place to follow what's going on.
1: Okay, guys, you can find these links. And by the way, let me know about the cover of this book. I know that Google paid two million dollars for uh, logo. I don't know how many you paid for this cover, but it's awesome. Just yeah, uh, uh, every time when I check out your cover, I oh yeah, I wanna read this book. Good job. Okay, guys, <laughs> okay, you can so find. I
0: yeah, encourage yeah. you then to judge judge my book by its cover. Go ahead. <laughs> do
1: it, do it. <laughs> I'm pretty sure that uh, context is much better, but cover mm-hmm. is awesome. Okay, guys, uh, let me know what you think about this cover. Uh, follow Aaron, you know, learn from him. You can see a lot of valuable insights. So if you want to get brand loyalty, love, you need to do it. Okay, Aaron, it's a big pleasure again, you know, to... Uh, that you accepted this invitation, you know, to share a lot of valuable insights. And thanks guys for listening and watching
0: us. Thanks for listening to this entire podcast. Please rank your experience in Apple, Spotify, Google, or any other platforms that you may use. Also, please share your ranking mark on chat at seotools.tv to get a special gift. We'll see you soon on other valuable audio
1: podcasts.